The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 86 for the week of October 1st. Alex, we've made it to the fourth quarter. We have. Happy October. Uh, hopefully we have a great comeback and end up pulling out the year here in Q4. That's right. You know, the... Uh, we're, yes, like the Bronco, Broncos against the Raiders down, but charging back. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's happening right now. We're going to finish the year strong. Let's do that. All right, uh, so we got some housekeeping. Uh, starting point, we have a Slack channel. We'd love to have you guys get engaged with us on the Slack channel. The link for that is available at secu- or colorado-security.com. We also have a mailing list. If you want to get the show notes in the mail every week, go to the website and sign up for that. And we'd love it if you would uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast application and rate us and say nice things about the show. Yeah, and when you do that, you should also tell a friend that you know we're a great podcast to listen to and that you should listen to us every day yeah we'd love it if you would just reach out to someone someone who you work with someone you think might appreciate us and help us grow that's uh you know we're not doing this for the acclaim we just would love to get to help uh, other folks in the community and finally if you do want to support the show we have a patreon campaign you can go out on our website go to the patreon campaign and uh give some money to help us pay the expenses of doing this show awesome let's jump into the news uh, first story, we talked a few weeks back about the old spaghetti factory closing, which was very sad. Um, but what are they going to put there, Alex? Instead, now you can go there and play mini golf. Well, that's not sad. That's exciting. That is very exciting. There's going to be indoor mini golf downtown at, what is that, like uh, Lawrence and 18th? Yeah, exactly. So for anyone who has been missing mini golf in downtown yeah. Denver... Sometime in 2019, you'll be able to play. So I assume they're going to just have to like scrape the whole outside of the building and start from scratch. Is that right? No, no, Rob. Uh, they're actually going to be putting in quite a bit of money to restore that building, including uh, putting back the original uh, arch entryway. Awesome. Now, that's that, it's an old cable car building. Is that right? Is that exactly. Like old yep. cable building. Pretty yep. cool. That, that should be fun. Uh, if you're looking for team events or if you live downtown and you want to do something fun there will be new mini golf in town and it's not just mini golf it's also a restaurant and bar and event center oh hey yeah not just mini golf all right well did you know alex that colorado springs has one of the most hottest one of the most hottest one of the hottest zip codes in the entire country for real estate uh irregardless of what you think rob <laughs> um it must must be in colorado well, Springs. I, I could care less all right <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, the number one hottest zip code is in Kentwood, Michigan, but uh, Colorado Springs 80922 is the second overall hottest. Well, they, they, and they do rate hotness based on uh, how frequently people are visited on, um, online to look at the houses in there and also how long it takes to sell a house in that zip code. You know, I think I would like to live in that zip code with a median house price of 297000 That seems a, a little bit low for much of the front range. And the hotness score is 99.3, which is scorching hot. It, it's a yeah. little hot for fall. Maybe it'll cool down a little bit as we're going into winter. And do we even say what the zip code is? Do we mention that? I, I did. Yeah, yeah, we did. Okay, well, congratulations to those folks. Uh, next, uh, Shell and NREL are teaming up for a startup for electrical grid and battery startups. This is pretty cool. They're going to recruit four companies in the fall to participate in this. Uh, It's a multi-year program, and they're going to add another four companies every six months or so. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, 
energy obviously is very important and i think we hear a lot how we have a, an aging power grid and instability things like that so uh, getting battery and grid startups uh more in the forefront will be pretty cool. And, and the startups that are the part of this will have the opportunity to be eligible for $250,000 worth of technical support and validation, the use of some lab space and equipment, and follow-up opportunities for funding and partnership. And I did see that this is also a part of uh, the Royal Dutch Shell's uh, larger strategy around the Paris Climate Accords compliance. Yeah, uh, which is awesome because, you know, oil is not necessarily the best for the environment. So, hey, batteries and power grid yeah. stuff. Uh, this next story comes from Denver Startup Week, um, where a number of tech companies go in and we're talking about how their senior engineers from all over the country uh, are, are really interested in living in Denver and doing tech work here in, in Denver. Yeah, they talked to some executives from Slack and Gusto and I, I think a couple others uh, just talking about how people are really interested in being here in Denver. You know, some people might apply actually in San Francisco for a job with them and then uh, say, hey, well, you know, I'd actually rather live in Denver and work for you. And they said, well, we'd be happy to have you in Denver with for a 50 percent pay cut. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I I would imagine if I was going to get hired on and get paid what I get paid in San Francisco right. and then turn around and say, oh, well, I'll move, work in Denver instead. Uh, it seems like a, an extra bonus. I believe we call that arbitrage. <laughs> uh, next, uh, Colorado has the most expensive state for co-working desks, a study finds. So this is interesting. We are the the state with the fifth most um, co-working spaces per capita. Um, but even com you know compared to California, New York, all you know, Massachusetts, we're still actually the number one most expensive co-working location. Yeah, I, I wonder why that is. Um, you know, I th the story was a little bit all over the place, talking about states and cities and things like that, but. Um, I think overall, I was just surprised in general at the cost of a co-working desk. Yeah, it cost $1,250 a month for the average person to have a co-working desk here in Denver. That's that's a lot of money. You know, I could uh, get a pretty nice digs for a room in my basement for 1250 bucks. Yeah, have, that have sounds like a visit. We could have co-working spaces in our homes. An Airbnb of co-working. I like it. Oh, you shouldn't have said that on the podcast. Uh, People are going to take that idea. Somebody's new billion-dollar idea. There are 222 co-working spaces here in Denver. Um, and the number one, excuse me, the number two most expensive place behind us is uh, Massachusetts, just at 1213, so not too far back. Nice. Uh, next, let's move into the security news. So uh, Ping had a blog this week talking about the why, when, and how of customer multi-factor authentication. Uh, and it, obviously, this is a, something that's critically important as we look at like this last week, Facebook announced a breach and um, that would have been one of those things that w could have uh, been prevented by having an effective two factor in place. Right. Um, so looking at they, they have an, a nice little chart in this blog that's showing, you know, here's the activities that are low risk that you wouldn't want to put 2FA in the front of because it's inconvenient. And here's the activities which are clearly um secure enough or sensitive enough that you need to have 2FA in front of them. And then for your business, there's this whole middle ground where you need to figure out what kind of business you do and which of these activities and what's your risk tolerance that you want to put 2FA in front of. It was, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think we're getting to the point now where uh, 2FA is, it needs to be pretty standard for any customer sort of apps. Um, obviously, you know, as you said, Rob, there's some exceptions there that they talk about in the blog, um, but being able to provide that uh, in an easy and secure way, I think is super important. Yeah. And then the next story is uh, a red canary. It's, a, it's actually a repost from the Carbon Black um, 
blog, but Red Canary posted it about the MITRE ATT&CK framework and, and how to use it when researching attacker behavior and running unit tests. Yeah, and we've talked about um, Red Canary and what they've developed around uh, MITRE ATT&CK framework. And this blog is just talking about um, essentially one use case that, uh, that Carbon Black uh, came up with. They had a, a hackathon and uh, used the ATT&CK framework uh, to come through and develop some tests that they could do some... Uh, what they call automatic blue teaming, which is just yeah. a pretty cool concept, something you could probably do in your own organization. Yeah. Uh, next blog is by Zvelo, and it's using DNS RPS to protect against malicious threats. That's a lot of acronyms all in a row. Yeah, basically this is talking about a DNS filter. So you can use uh, an RPZ filter between your resolvers and uh, your clients. Essentially, it's like, I think of like URL filtering, but before the point you get to the URLs, just when you're doing the DNS lookups. So if you have, um, you know, some of these filters, uh, they suggest a, a white list, a, um, a malicious list, and a suspicious list. You know, you won't even get to the point of looking up those domains because your the requests will get dropped before they get to your DNS. Yeah, that's great. Uh, next logarithm is, is announced that they were put in the leaders portion of the Forrester wave. If you look at the, the image in this link, uh, they're not only in the leaders portion, they're actually all the way in the upper right. They're further than IBM and Splunk. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to logarithm. Um, best in SEM, I guess is the, the only thing you can say there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. If you look at them, there's, there's a lot of them all the way on the left is alien vault. Poor guys all by themselves. Yeah, you know, for for a while, uh, <laughs> they seem to have a, a good amount of promise, but now all I hear is bad stuff. Yeah, it's a bummer. So, it is a bummer. Uh, finally, Coalfire had a blog this week talking about leading in privacy. So uh, there are some work groups that are starting with NIST to develop a, uh, a privacy framework, a NIST privacy framework, and uh, Coalfire is contributing to that. And they're, they're going to be doing a series of meetings similar to how they did with the NIST cybersecurity framework, where they get public-private uh, organizations together to talk about what they need, what this should look like. Um, so there is still opportunity to get involved if, if you're inclined to do such a thing. Yeah, and uh, I was involved a little bit with the formation of the NIST cybersecurity framework, and uh, th that was an interesting experience. So if you have a, a chance to attend one of those meetings, I'd say go for it. All right, let's go ahead and move over to our Slack message of the week. Uh, big thanks to Andre Gaeta, who is our sponsor for this uh, portion of the show. Andre, we, we appreciate you doing this. And our winner this week is Ben Downing. Ben, we appreciate your, your commentary. And especially we were talking, we had a conversation this week about um, about Facebook's activities. This was actually before their, their breach came out. Right. Uh, but it, it came out that Facebook was is using the phone number you gave for your two-factor authentication to market ads to you. And of course, Ben's, Ben's comment here was right on point that, you know, the last thing you ever want to be doing is putting... Uh, Two selling two-factor and giving a reason that someone shouldn't want to use a security control like this. Exactly. Um, you don't ever want to have to, to sacrifice things uh, to get better security. So sacrificing your privacy for better security is not a good thing. All right. Let's go ahead and move over to our events for in the next couple of weeks. As a reminder, we do have a section of the website, which is a calendar of events. You can go out and see what's going on really out through the end of the year. And uh, hopefully we'll catch you at one of these events. First on the list, SecureSet is doing their expert series with Chris Martinez on the 4th of October. Chris is the CISO over at Maxar, formerly known as Digital Globe. Um, also on the 4th, there is the Lockton Mountain West Cyber Day. Lockton is a law firm in town, and I assume this will be kind of some, uh, some law-related security stuff. 
Uh, Colorado Springs uh, Cybersecurity is doing their first Friday Cybersecurity Social and Mixer on the 5th. So this is down in the Springs. The, uh, the business development group down there is having a, a cybersecurity mixer. On the 8th, SecureSet is doing a Hacking 101 Asset Management with Matthew McDonald. Also on the 8th and the 9th, the National Cybersecurity Center is doing their big annual conference, the Cyber Symposium, second annual down there in the Springs. So this good is a, speakers. Yeah, this is a place for you to get to see some really good speakers, get to, to, to see some governors and some other political folks. It's not really targeted at... Uh, practitioners. This is what we we learned from Vance uh, Vance Brown on the show was it last week or two weeks ago when we had him on. Uh, it's really targeted more for uh, policymakers, business executives, people who aren't day to day in security. So maybe send your boss to this. I will say one of my favorite speakers, Dan Gear, is speaking there. So if you want to hear Dan Gear, head down to the spring. Be great just to go for that. Uh, Denver ISSA has their October chapter meetings on October 9th and tenth. That'll be. Uh, lunchtime in Boulder on the Tuesday the 9th, dinner in downtown Denver on Tuesday the 9th, and lunch on Wednesday in the, De- the Denver Tech Center. Uh, on the 10th, there's a cyber risk management event. I say that because this is all in caps. Um, this, this is, is Route right. 9B in, in uh, Zavaro. I really wanted to say Zavello, yeah. but now that we have a Zavello and a Zavaro in town, I know I'm going to get confused one yeah. of these days. So they're doing an event uh, on cyber risk management. On the 11th, uh, Colorado ISSA, Colorado Springs ISSA is doing a, a professional networking event. And I believe that is it for our events. That is it, yeah. So let's go ahead and move over to jobs. Um, as per usual, we, we have a couple of ping jobs. I'll let Rob talk about those. Uh, we're, we're growing like crazy, and I, I have uh, four jobs to go through, and I'll, I'll make it a little bit quicker than usual. Uh, I am on my team directly working with me. I'm hiring a cloud security architect. Also in my security team, we're hiring a product security engineer. So if you have some development background and you want to help us secure the SDLC, this is a job for you. Uh, it's not actually building code day, day in, day out. It's making sure that the code that's built is secure. So doing manual testing, security assessments, and all that. We are also hiring a GRC analyst here in Denver that's going to help us with uh, help us with compliance and assurance for our program and talking to customers about what we do. And then finally, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we are hiring an API security product marketing manager. Um, so that's helping us tell the story about the new API security uh, product that, we, that we've recently released. Uh, reach out to me directly if you're interested in that last one because I can get you into the right folks. That sounds like a cool job. Uh, next, Prologis is hiring an IT security engineer. This one's actually focused on Secure SDLC as well. So very similar to the product security engineer job I mentioned. Uh, Elastic is hiring a senior security engineer. And Elastic is also hiring a senior risk and compliance analyst. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then finally, Ardent Mills is hiring a senior security analyst. Yeah, some good jobs this week. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of the the newscast. Uh, we, we have a feature interview, which uh, Alex, I actually recorded this feature interview with Brian Bear and James Carter up in Alaska. Wow. Yeah. So it was after. Wait, wait, wait. Does that break the rules that that you recorded it outside of Colorado, Rob? This it, isn't. Yeah. If I take it, if it's not I take Alaska equals security. Colorado security people with me, I think it still counts. Uh, all right. Um, I I will say it might have been after a drink or two, so you might get a little more truth than you normally mm-hmm. do from these guys. Was this uh, around the campfire or uh, like while riding moose or what, what was this? Uh, it was actually both. We were riding moose around a campfire. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it. All right, good stuff. All right. Well, that's it for the, for the show. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Rob. Thanks.
Hi, this is Jose Calvillo, CISO at ASF Payment Solutions. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. For Colorado security professionals, by Colorado security professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. We are doing a feature interview from the great, the great uh, north. We are in Alaska. Uh, Alaska this week, I'm here with James Carter, the CISO from Logarithm, and Brian Baer, the CEO of Red Canary. And for those who don't know, not only am I the co-host of Colorado Equal Security, I'm also the, the CISO for Ping Identity. So I thought we could talk a little bit about being on the vendor side of things. What, what have we learned being on the vendor side? Uh, what kind of, what kind of uh, things can we share with other folks as we're doing this? Does that sound okay, guys? Sounds, Sounds great. great. So we're, we also have drinks in front of us. So if this gets a little off the rails, that's okay. Everyone's okay? Yeah? All right. <laughs> Um, so the first, first really hard-hitting topic I want to get into, guys, is, is the news out of DIA. We know that there's, a big, there's a, a big remodel going on. They're kind of restructuring where the gates are. But it looks like there's actually quite a bit of controversy here with, uh, with the lizard people, spaces underneath DIA. Have you guys heard about this? The lizard people are there. In fact, it looks like the Denver airport is now trolling all the conspiracy theorists with billboards of lizard people and the Illuminati saying, what are we really doing? There's a, apparently there's a cornerstone like that was put down when the, build, the airport was built in, I think it was 1994. And it's it it put there by two Freemason chapters and some group called like the New World Airport <laughs> Coalition or something. That, that has like, there's a, a time capsule underneath it basically saying, you know, open this up in 2094. And I can only assume that there's some kind of Illuminati stuff in Very the time likely. capsule. I mean, we'll yeah. never find out until at least like 3045 because everything about DIA has always been delayed so far. <laughs> there you go. I think I get a pass as I'm technically not a Denver native. I've only been here three years, so I'll believe whatever you guys are telling me about this. I don't think there's this. any Denver natives. Does that mean I get to be a Denver native because I've been here nine years? Well, you know about this DIA conspiracy theory, so I would assume yes. <laughs> Got to follow the red parts of the internet. All right, let's, let's get into some real security conversation. Let's talk about the Scoville security ratings. Have you guys, have you guys experienced with the Scoville security ratings yet? This is different than Gartner and Forrester and everything else. There's, oh. a, there's a hot pepper rating for, for security. Oh, I'm dead serious, guys. You guys haven't had a chance to see this yet. No. So, so there's a Forbes article out here that's, uh, that's helping us compare risk to the Scoville scale of, of pepper hotness. So you guys are familiar with you know, the Scoville scale, right? Where a, a jalapeno, I've got it in front of me here, a jalapeno is somewhere in the 2,500 to 8,000 Scoville units. Um, what a habanero puts us up at um, about you know, 100,000 to 300,000. The Carolina Reaper up at a couple million Scoville <laughs> units. Well, this article uh, written, as I mentioned by Forbes, um, goes into giving a Scoville rating for all of the security risks out there. Um, and we can give a couple of examples of what that might mean. Data breaches, data, data breaches as a risk. They are at the ghost pepper level. Wow. Yeah. Uh, malware, that's just at the jalapeno pepper level, according to this article. Everybody has that. Uh, <laughs> uh, ransomware is at the fatali pepper level. That means I, I, nothing. I, like, where does that yeah, fall yeah. in the scale? Well, Between the, a jalapeno and habanero? The, the, the fatali is just, nor, just hotter than habanero. Uh -huh. So pretty hot, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, we, have, uh, we have phishing at the habanero level. Uh, the distributed denial of service, which is like a Trinidad pepper. 
I, I, I think really rather than going through all of these risks, I, I want to get your immediate take on how useful is the Scoville, Scoville units measurement for your security risks? What's the Scoville rating for zero? Zero <laughs> useful. Bell pepper. Green pepper. The answer yeah. is bell pepper. The answer is bell pepper. Well, I already thought this would go perfect for my next board meeting. And I'll be like, hey, you know, how's the security program going, James? Well, let me show you how we measure that. So I, what, what I could see you doing is going to the board meeting with a, with a box full of peppers and you say, exactly. well, depending on how spicy this is, you're going to know how, how high the risk is right now. Take a bite. Let's see how much you guys trust me. Sounds like a winning board strategy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, would your board members take that bite, guys? Budget's immediately approved for, for the next year. So you're saying we've stopped attempting to quantify risk altogether, and we've given up and started using food. We're using we're using the hotness of peppers as the solution. Um, does this mean we've have we jumped the shark at, in terms of uh, rating no, risk? We jumped the shark two days ago when we read the article that said EDR is dead and it's been replaced by XDR. Well, speaking of <laughs> speaking of this, this was actually my next topic. I had a feeling this discussion. was going to come up. <laughs> I don't see how we could have this conversation without at least addressing. I mean, the elephant in the room is is you guys who are selling Brian at Red Canary. You guys are selling you know managed EDR as a solution, and obviously you're you're kind of behind the times. Uh, and, and point detection this, this is not a forward-looking statement, but Red Canary is apparently over because EDR is dead, and now XDR is here. And, and what is XDR exactly? Yeah, the article said it's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> so, What so, would you like give, your X to be, James? Yeah, I, I really don't know. It's just hard to choose like a handful of things when you've got so much to choose from. So Let's make it SIM. SIMDR. Ooh. Just take, take a moment just to assume that not everyone listening has read this article. Maybe you could kind of summarize what they're missing. James told me that CSO Online is no longer allowing vendor CSOs to write articles. And thus as a final hurrah, <laughs> someone selling the world's first XDR solution said that EDR is dead. And, and e Summary EDR complete. is replaced by extreme Detection and response, or the X, I think, was supposed to be a stand-in for asterisk. I think I think asterisk, stardr. What do you think X? What do you think X is just next-gen AI, ML, blockchain, all wrapped into one? Maybe. I mean, we all did try to endorse Rob for blockchain skills on LinkedIn, <laughs> and the AI didn't let us. If this gets edited out of the out of the show, <laughs> don't be surprised. Uh, so talking about you know what we got we get from analysts at this point. What, what do you guys see now? Let's get a little bit serious now, for real. What do you guys see the value of analysts in the industry being at this point? Analysts as in Gartner. Yeah, your Gartners, Foresters, Coppinger, Cole. Yeah. So we, you know, as a, I guess not so young, but when we were young as a company, everyone always described it to us as the Gartner tax that everyone paid, and so we went into it with a pretty low opinion of how the experience would go because of it. And I've talked to a bunch of other people and different parts of the security industry have different experiences, but we've been really fortunate in Gartner around the EDR and overall detection and response space as having really good analysts. Hmm. I mean, we we talk pretty frequently with people like Peter Firstbrook, Anton Chuvakin, Ian McShane, Toby Busa, and many others. Like, I really respect their opinions and the customers that they've talked to. Hmm. They've been great to work with. What value do they give you? For, or, or do they give the customers? I guess I, I don't even know what value they're providing either side in your perspective. So for us, in our case, the value they provide is that they have had hundreds of customers 
asking them questions about what they should be investing in and trends they're seeing. And as a security team building a security product for security people, sometimes we're so deep in our vein and we feel like we know the answer that people are looking for, but we don't always know exactly what messaging or what words to use. And they can be helpful in bridging that gap. And, and, and I think they've got, you know, like you, you mentioned a number of analysts, but I think they've got a lot of great analysts. And I think from, you know, a non-vendor perspective, most CISOs out there at major corporations, if they're going to buy a product, they're going to look at Gartner's upper right and say, okay, who's in that upper right? And let me evaluate that. Mm -hmm. And so on the flip side, from a, from a vendor perspective, we obviously want to make that upper right quadrant. So that way, whenever, you know, there is a, and there is obviously a SIM magic quadrant. So for us, we want to be in there. So whenever a prospect decides that they want to go take on SIM, we're one of the, the top three that they're going to pull in to evaluate. So I think it helps us from a sales perspective as well. And I'd say similar for, from my perspective working with analysts, I think one of the main things that they give and Gartner and Forrester, all of them do it, is helping come up with kind of a standard vernacular, standard language to use to discuss what we do. Because if you left it up to to logarithm and, and ping a red canary, you know, it'd be very solution-centric language that that's addresses what we do, but maybe wouldn't be similar between you know our competitors, right? And, and it makes it, it makes it tough for someone to search for the right solution. But once that once EDR becomes the thing to search for, or IAM or SIM or whatever it is, it makes it a lot easier for us to go Google it and compare and contrast across different solutions. I think it can be a double-edged sword sometimes though for yeah. a lot of innovative companies that you know come out with the capability. So as an example, Logarithm really came out with SOAR a number of years ago with our whole with smart SOAR? response package, security automation, orchestration, and response. Um, and we called it security automation orchestration. We first called it smart response and then we said, okay, it's security automation orchestration. And then Gartner came out and said, nope, thou shall be called SOAR. And so we had to then go back in and change our marketing around and say, yep, this is SOAR. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with UEBA and you know, user and entity behavior analytics, entity meaning anything else. Right. Um, you know, we had to adopt the language of Gartner. So that's the downside of it, right? Yeah. Is that in my opinion, and I think this is partially because many CISOs like to buy products and don't focus as much on what outcomes their business actually needs you end up with security teams looking for products that fit in categories. Gartner takes everything everyone does and puts it into categories instead of focusing on what's the actual outcome you're trying to achieve, mm -hmm. right? When you guys started to do this with Smart Response, it wasn't, I want to be at the top right of the future SOAR quadrant. That's right. Because that wasn't even a thing. You said, when something bad happens, I want to be able to take action. Right. And so that I think as much as I like the Gartner analysts we get to work with, I think as a as an organization or really all of the analysts, by putting things in product categories, they actually do everyone a huge disservice. People stop focusing on the use cases and the outcomes they want and they get way too wrapped up in categories. Which which is a problem that the industry faces, like every CISO, you know, you know, some are good, some are some are not so good, but it seems like every time I come across a prospect or a customer or anything like that, when I talk to these folks, getting back to the why is it that you're here, why is it that what problem are you actually trying to solve is always a very tough question for them to answer. They're like, well, we've got all these products here, we're going to integrate them and, and what? But why are you here? Right. And they have a hard time with that. The, the other thing relating it back to the whole Gardner piece is that 
there are a number of companies that either A, don't have a quadrant, and so therefore, you know, people don't go out and look for that particular thing, or B, they get pigeonholed into a quadrant because it's, you know, that, that's what Gartner thinks you're best right. fit at. So for us, it's a double-edged sword to be in the sim magic quadrant because you have one side of, of the, of the uh, you know, community that says sim is dead, uh, and so they're not going to go look at this, you know, whatever the sim magic quadrant is. But then you have other ones that say that, that you know, it's obviously well alive with next gen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but we're pigeonholed in that. So we don't get the UEBA quadrant. We don't get the security automation orchestration and response quadrant, but we're pigeonholed into sim. I, I think, you know, it's, it's a real challenge that it, having the language is great because it, now there's something that CISOs can, can Google for. And, and really, you really do need that. You can't, you can't Google for a, a problem you're trying to solve very easily. The language doesn't work very well. Um, but you look at something like signal sciences, we've talked about them this week, and, and I think we all kind of like what they're doing. Uh, and they initially didn't want to be called a laugh, but I think they realized the only way to get, to get budget, to, get, to show up in Google searches, and to actually be a part of the conversation is to say, yeah, we're, we're next gen WAF. And, and you know, they didn't want to be that, but that's the only way for them to be a part of the conversation, and, and they can win opportunities that way. Okay. I don't know that there's a, a better solution right now. I, I, think, I actually don't even think it's the analysts. I think it's like the, the optimi optimization for Google search results that's actually causing the problem is you want to be, you want to be on the first page one of Google for whatever term you're looking for. And if there's no term for you, then you're not going to get any natural search. That's right. I think there may not be a direct solution for it, but what is really important is that security companies like ours do not get wrapped up in their identity being what quadrant they fit mm. in or where they get bucketed and recognize that you exist as a security company for a reason. You exist to help your customers solve certain problems. And one year that means you're going to sell into three different Gartner quadrants or three different Gartner categories. And the next year it might be five and the next year it might be two, right? Those are helpful tools, like you said, from a messaging perspective, but they never define you, right? Like Red Canary is not managed EDR, right? Like we're here for a very different purpose. Yeah. Logarithm is not, or I hope you guys don't think like, hey, our only goal in life is to be a sim company. Like that's a really it's sad, confusing. It's a security state. operations play, right? <laughs> that's and, right. And you're actually right. both security operations plays coming at it from a different perspective. That's right. Yeah. Find bad things, stop yeah. bad things. That's right. That that's something we have mutually uh, mutually um, we're mutually agreeable on is your, your from, Vim, from a your company. Your Venn diagrams overlap, that's right. right? That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, so, you know, kind of moving on from the analyst side to another another part of the ecosystem we've been talking about this week is is the, the VAR, the, vent, the the reseller. Where do you guys see the resellers playing? And, and let's talk about it as a vendor, but then we can also swing over to the CISO side. But as a vendor, how do you guys see value-added resellers playing a part in the ecosystem? I mean, I think from, from my perspective, if I, you know, have my CISO hat on slightly separate from just my corporate, you know, sales side of things, you know, from a CISO perspective, obviously you want a trusted partner. You want one organization to kind of one organization to funnel things through. Um, and for us, being a vendor, we also wouldn't mind some um, anonymous anonymous anonymity. Pre there you go, anonymity. I always have a hard time pronouncing that. Uh, so that way, we don't actually upset our vendor partners out there. Yeah. So if you know, we we choose to go with one direction on firewall 
or you know, uh, you know, endpoint detection and response, or whatever the case might be. We don't want to upset our other vendors, so that's also very important. Um, and then from a sales perspective, it's you know, no secret. Logarithm is a channel, is a is a channel sales type organization, and so those vendor uh, value added resellers or VARs, um, you know, they they bring us a lot of business, um, and so it, it always helps us to be very closely aligned to, to their needs and what they're seeing as well uh, and tailor some of our product around that as well so that way they continue to push our product. Yeah, I'd say very similar to, to your answer from a, from a go-to-market, you know, Ping for the most part does direct sales, but you know, we've been getting significantly more invested in channel and, and I think as we look at scaling you know, to get bigger and bigger, channel becomes a bigger part of the plan and having those relationships is very important that you're, you're kind of uh, and getting getting a, a larger sales force, you know, by by expanding into the channel. However, the negative is you don't control that sales force. You don't control the messaging, and you know you, you don't necessarily get the right opportunities until you until you've really invested into that channel. And it takes quite a bit of it work does. to get there. It does, and, and, and you have to be okay with the fact that you, whenever you make a sell, you're actually you've got one more hand to put money right. in. You've got one more person you've got to pay. Yeah. So to me, it's less about the money, though. And the bigger downside is not that you are taking margin and you're effectively raising your customers' prices, right, by adding a reseller in the loop. To me, the biggest negative is that you're adding in someone else in between you and intimacy mm -hmm. with the team you're working yeah. with. Yep. That's one of the biggest reasons, you know, we are probably 95% direct today is because we have such an intimate relationship with our customers it is a big challenge when you end up with other teams in there. Yeah, now, that, we have a handful of them, right, who are exceptional teams to work with, and it's why you'll see Red Canary with some of them, but it's very few and far between. And that's, a, that's an excellent point, because I think, you know, a lot of these bars are trained up on, you know, a whole plethora of, of products that they need to, need to know and be an expert in, but no one knows your product probably better than you do. And so you, you know, if they want to control the relationship side and then you can yeah. never actually solve the problem for the customer, that's a, that's a huge challenge. Um, and then, you know, what, what does the customer think? Does the customer think it's your product or, or is it your services? A lot of times it's just they say, oh, the product doesn't work. It's like, yeah. Well, no. That's never that's, a question. That's, they yeah, always think it's that's the right, product. That's that right. That's right. So that is a, is a huge challenge. It's something that we've run across quite a bit as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'd say from from the buying perspective, as the CISO who's going to buy a product, if I'm going to buy Logarithm or Red Canary, I would much, much rather talk to the Logarithm or Red Canary salesperson. And when I have feedback, good or, good or bad, I know you're getting it, right? Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, it's one step for me to go from my AE to the product manager or whoever it is. As you try and do it through that reseller, the, the, the relationship gets more confused. You don't get that direct feedback. Um, I don't actually know if I even trust their motives along the way that, that what I, what I hear from them may be, you know, maybe truthfully that they're having a problem with, you know, their log logarithm product, or it may be that, Hey, now they're in bed with this competitor to logarithm and they're trying to move things in that direction. Right. And you just don't know that you can really yeah. trust what you get. So I prefer whenever possible to go directly to, to the vendor. And, um, and, and I, by the way, I don't, I don't, I don't think it impacts the sales price much either way. I think I get basically the same price either way, but I get that, that good relationship directly with my vendors. Instead of playing a game of telephone where it's customer through a bar, through something yeah. else, back yeah. over to you. So with all that and both of your opinions on that as CISOs, what is the future of a VAR five years from now? Do they still exist? I think they do. I think they do. I think they're, um, 
you know, if I look at a number of the bars that are out there that, uh, you know, I, I think they provide, some of them provide a level of value for their customers and they're a trusted advisor. So that way it's not the vendor trying to sell them something, but it's a trusted advisor that's supposed to be there to say, this is what you need based on the use cases or problem you're trying to solve. So I think that need will still be there. I don't see it going away for the next five, so you 10 see years. It shifting heavily to the advisory side with the resale and procurement side is just a bonus along with it. I, you know, honestly, I think that's the way it should be. I mean, I think, I think that's the way it should be today. I mean, obviously everybody gets measured probably on their sales targets and things like that. But at the end of the day, the sales will happen if you're providing the value to the customer and being that trusted yeah. advisor. And, and I think, probably one of the problems in the industry is that there's less of that now uh, and there needs to be a lot more of being that But that's what advisor. they talk about, right? Like if you go talk to any of these VARs, that's all they talk about is, hey, we're trying to get out of being 90-10 product services and be you know, 50-50 product services because services are the future, that's where we want to be. And that's, that's how they can add that, that value. But they've been talking about it forever and they're not delivering that, mm-hmm. that new ratio. It's because revenue is addictive, right? Yeah. Revenue is addictive. And, and I think it's hard to be good at everything too. It, you know, if you're good at pushing product, you can be good at some services, but when you try to offer too many services, you want to be the, the best at, you know, doing managed EDR and managed SIM and managed IAM, you're not going to be good at all three of those probably. Well, and they're not incentivized to, to, you know, focus on being a trusted partner because a trusted partner doesn't return cash. Right. It can, but it's not, it's not, it's not a direct match. And so, the reason why I look at products and services as well is that if you buy a product, it could it's a it's a one-time shot. You've got but you've got maintenance tied to it. You may have a multi-year agreement with that. So you've got this continuous stream of revenue that comes in from a from a single sale, and it's usually a pretty high dollar amount. Where in services, oftentimes you can get uh, it's a it's a lower dollar amount and a shorter period of time. So it's not something that's going to reoccur year over year over year generally. See, so I think this all shifts. You know personal opinion as we go from today's state where probably 20% of security products are SaaS recurring, right? Provided as a subscription and 80% still the on-prem type you deploy it yourself as it moves to being almost completely SaaS. I think this whole dynamic changes a ton. I agree. I agree. I mean, when, when we go buy things, it is always easier to say, Hey, we just want to turn this thing on right now. I just want the outcome, you know, it all comes back to outcomes. I want the outcome right now, take my money, deliver the outcome. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean, we, we've asked a lot of questions inside the general technology space of do value-added resellers exist around other parts of SaaS? And the answer is not very often. Hmm. No, I can see maybe from a managed services type perspective mm-hmm. of even if you go through a SaaS product for security, you may still want a you know, third party to manage it. Yep. If you don't, you know, get that from the actual SaaS itself, SaaS right. provider itself. It's uh, kind of getting away from SaaS though, right? It's, that's becoming like an MSP or, or a, not even MSP necessarily, just a, a service, a managed service, right? That's right. But it ends up being a lot of consulting, right? You see yeah. it. So think like marketing worlds like HubSpot and Marketo. You're always going to buy HubSpot and Marketo through them directly. Yeah. But you absolutely can have your HubSpot and Marketo managed consultants come in and manage it by some other agency. Mm. It's interesting. All right, move it, moving into another topic. You guys, I know you guys want to talk about blockchain. So <laughs> what I want to hear is, is how is blockchain going to disrupt your industry in the next 12 months, 
five years, 10 years, whatever it is. How's blockchain going to change? Well, Bitcoin prices go back through the roof again. All the Bitcoin we're sitting on for, <laughs> for ransomware payoffs becomes worth a lot more. <laughs> no, it, it won't. I don't see how it affects us at all. Not in the next at least five years I know of. I mean, I know, you know, I've got a, uh, we put a paper together to speak at RSA next year, and it's going to be one around voting, uh, voting systems and blockchain. And we've got folks from, you know, city and county of Denver, yeah. uh, state of Colorado, and then uh, we're actually trying to bring onto the panel uh, the representative from the state of West Virginia, because oddly enough, the state of West Virginia, which, you know, I, I lived there for a number of years, but they're actually going to be the first state to implement blockchain as a part of their voting process. And so, you know, I do see there are some potential limit, you know, some uses that they could uh, have for it today. But I think from a security industry perspective, I don't see anything changing for us for the next you know, three to five years. None of it makes any sense to me around that, especially on the voting side, right? Every single recommendation over and over is that you use paper ballots that are verifiable. Everything that's been done on the voting side that's electronic, let alone blockchain, is going to be more and more disastrous. Yeah, I, I, I'll push back just a little bit on that as much as I'm not a, I'm not a big blockchain proponent. I do believe we will be moving away from paper and into electronic balloting. And whether they use blockchain or they use some other kind of ledger, um, we need to do a better job of figuring out how to secure that because it's not going to be paper forever. And, and people are going to keep pushing us and pushing us and there's... You know, there's disaster or there's success one way or the other. But can you explain how, I mean, it's not a ledger you need from a voting perspective. All you need is a record, right? You need a database. Yeah. So isn't a ledger a database? In, in what case does the blockchain go solve something that when you press the button in the voting machine, just sending it back to a server? Like in what case does blockchain solve something that TCP doesn't already? So the only real difference between blockchain and a database is the distributed nature of it, right? That's, as far as I can tell, that's the only significant di difference from a practical perspective. Distributed, you, know, you have distributed trust with the blockchain versus you know, uh, a centralized trust with, with, a, with a database. And is there value in having decentralized trust in an election situation? I think it kind of I, I don't is see the opposite it, but maybe, of elections, right? right? Elections <laughs> are all about decentralized trust. Right, it, it should be. Uh, I, I'd say from, from the IAM perspective, there are a lot of conversations about how you can use blockchain to be interesting. Um, getting me, I, I, can't, I still can't prove someone's identity from a blockchain, but I can say that they've been claiming the same identity for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've been claiming to be James Carter for, you know, 30x years, you know, there's a, a better chance that you really are James Carter than the guy who started claiming it 15 minutes ago. And, and that's a place where identity and having a centralized store, or I guess it'd be a decentralized store that's used all over the place, um, starts to add some value. I can see that disrupting things from a consumer perspective. Um, having the government use something like that, I, I struggle it. If the government uses it, it's no longer decentralized and mm -hmm. it kind of loses the whole. So, I mean, yeah. hearing us talk about that, th this is what I have flashbacks to. Remember when Git first came out yeah. and it was going to replace CVS and SVN for yeah. all of our source control? Remember how everyone talked about how the huge benefit of Git is that it's decentralized? But that's not how anyone actually used it. Right. I say anyone, like, 99% of people using Git are pushing to a centralized master yeah. on either GitHub or GitLab or a location like that. So maybe that's an interesting question. 
will blockchain actually support a useful use case, but not be decentralized at all and turn into something like GitHub? I hear about some of the large banks using internal internal implementations of blockchain, um, and and when I hear about it, they'll talk about stuff like in, the immutability and the audit record you get from it. Mm -hmm. But I, there's nothing, as far as I can tell, there's nothing different about that than you would get from any old database that's got you know some kind of right. audit well, trail well, attached to it. Remember atomic database operations? Yeah. Like that was why we use databases. Yeah. So we're, st we're still a ways away, I think, from figuring that out. <laughs> but I have figured out how to get Rob to defend blockchain. That's right. I'm very confused <laughs> That's where right. we are which right is, now. Which is not easy. Which yeah. is why we should go back to make sure we endorse him for blockchain exactly. uh, on his LinkedIn profile. Uh, all right. Uh, a couple more questions for you guys. We're, we're, we're doing a good job here. Um, what events are worth spending money on? What security events? And I'm talking about now, we're, we're, we're all vendors here, right? What, what are the events that make sense for us to have our marketing dollars spent on? You know, that's a great question because I see too often where marketing dollars are spent on all these events and the return on that investment is, is negligible. Yeah. Uh, and then there are other cases where if you don't, you know, attend that event or invest in that event, then you're just not a player. Yeah, if, you're, if you don't show up at RSA conference, that's right. everyone RSA, notices that, right? Black Hat, uh, you know, those types of conferences. Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference. Sure, National sure, events. sure. Um, National events, yes. And uh, yeah, so if you're not at one of those major events, then you're just not a player uh, in that space. But there are a lot of other smaller events that we just tend to throw money at, and I don't yeah. think we get that much of a return on. I, so for the big events, I think we, we think we have to be there because otherwise there's questions about your viability as a company. That's right. Um, but maybe we, you don't get the money out of it. If you go spend a million bucks on, on RSA conference, Maybe you do, maybe you don't get an ROI, I don't know. Are there other events though that you do get an ROI on that you don't have to do? So you guys Red, have opinions on that? At Red Canary, the way we separate these and what helped all of this make a lot of sense to us is that there are events you will do for branding purposes hmm. and there are others you will do for lead generation or relationship building. If you go into RSA and think that you are going to generate leads that will make it worth your while to spend $500,000 or a million dollars, I think you'll be sadly disappointed every time. Mm -hmm. Like the way we look at it is, you know, in the same way you were talking about, you go to events like that for branding. You want people to realize the Ping brand, the Logarithm brand, the Red Canary brands, they're great brands who are going to be at events like that and who are leaders in the security industry in general. But you're not going to get a tremendous number of leads out of them. You might, people call you, might, you might be surprised. I think, you know, when I look at, you know, we get access to uh, our marketing team sends us like, hey, here's the number of leads. Here's the number of hot leads that were generated from these events. Black Hat and RSA are obviously our, our two biggest. Uh, and they generate a ton of leads. And the way, I, the way we look at it is if one or two of those leads become a customer, it's already it's paid for even. itself. It's a break even. And anything on top of that is, is gravy. So... Um, so, you know, I would push back a little bit too, saying that, you know, even though they're expensive, we do get a lot of leads and there's a lot of foot traffic that goes through our booth and, you know, people that, you know, may have never even heard of us before all of a sudden get to hear about us based on our location and in the, in the vendor hall. So, um, it does do a good job for us generating leads. But, but, but I, I think your point is there's two different axes to think about it on, right? There's lead generation and there's branding. There is. And there's a difference in terminology. Yeah. So we obviously, because of shared investors, you know, we've learned a lot about how you guys market at RSA and how a lot of other companies do. To me, you know, when we're talking about leads and your marketing team telling you they got leads, that's equivalent to business cards, 
right? Yeah, they I would got agree. names and contact information. That's not a relationship you're going to follow up on directly. That's somebody you're going to blast with an email or cold call. Yeah, and there and there are obviously different classes of leads, as you right. as you might say. So if they've yeah. got, you know, obviously the largest pool is the business card lead, mm -hmm. but then they have tiers below that that mm -hmm. talk about other leads. And like I said, even if out of that, you know, one thousand leads or whatever that were generated, yeah. one or two mm -hmm. are hot enough and they become customers, it's paid for itself. Right. And there's there's a, like we have the you know, marketing generated leads, marketing influenced, marketing touched, yeah. and all these things that you know, they all add up to showing some kind of ROI on the big expense. Yeah, that's what they're measured yeah. on now. Yeah, yeah. And, and it should be, right? Yeah. But I do like the idea that maybe it's not all just about opportunities, that there's, there's some spend that you just have to do for the brand to say, hey, we're a healthy brand that's a part of the, the show. And then there's some events where, you know, you don't have to be at that little tiny thing, but gosh, we see a great ROI there, and that's, yeah. that's all ROI-based. So and, the events we've done like that, yeah. our favorite ones have been local to a geographic area, mm. primarily led by our customers, mm. and fun. Like some of the most fun things we did have been brewery tours yeah. in Atlanta, in the Bay Area, where, you know, one in Denver as well, where a couple of our local customers go. And it really is a time for people to hang out and spend time together. And a quick little presentation to walk through, like, hey, here's why we selected Red Canary for this and why it makes yeah. sense for us. Is that the, the bike thing, the bike around Denver thing you guys did? I think so. Yeah, that yeah, was the Denver version that of that. Denver, yeah. Sometimes I think you also want to, you know, be at events because your competitors are there. Mm. And I think that's another piece. And you know, I don't think that's, that's a big enough piece to force you to contribute, you know, actual money to be at, be at an event. But sometimes you may look at it and say, okay, well, if this is an event and your top competitors are there and you're not there, what again, does that say, right? Yeah, what does that say yep. about who you are? If there's somebody who needs a SIM or an IAM or a EDR, then they're going with the other people. And right. same, same thing with like partner conferences, you know, for all these other major, you know, security vendors that throw their own user conference. If you're not at their user conference, what does that say about your uh, ability to integrate with them and leverage mm -hmm. them and partner with them yeah. uh, if you're not there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's why we've always invested. One of our favorite events we like doing is Carbon Black's user conference every year because we go, and for several years, we you know, supported the developer days that they had. And it was a great chance to work with teams and answer really hard questions and also make it really clear, nobody knows how to do this better than we do. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, we know what you're doing is really hard and you're probably not very good at it, right? <laughs> Who'd never say that? <laughs> Now, there's another type of event as well. I'm okay. interested to know how you guys think about them. What about speaking at the Sand Summits or DerbyCon or GurCon or events like that? Yeah, I mean, I think DerbyCon's a, you know, we always try to submit some pretty technical talks to DerbyCon. I think it's actually from a technician perspective. Mm -hmm. You may not get, in my opinion, the, you know, budget owner. Uh, at the at DerbyCon, but you will get the um, you know influencers at DerbyCon, the folks that actually are more technical, understand uh, you know what's real about security versus folks that are more focused on the business side. So I do find value in there because even though, like I said, you don't get the budget owner, you still get the influencer, and usually those guys are are, are and gals are smart, trusted advisors to their CISO uh, or to the budget owner. So yeah, I actually we like uh, investing in conferences like that. I think they're awesome for recruiting as well, right? Yeah, I mean, that's you, get, you get to send your best technical people up there to talk about what they get to do every day. 
and they're generally presenting side by side with other people who you would love to have on your team. Yeah, or, or, or you have other folks that are trying to now recruit and poach those folks at it because they're yeah. so smart. But it's, this is just like the whole, it's like this whole bunch of goodness, right? Those talks, I, I suspect there is not a great ROI on them. There's this thought leadership idea that goes, goes into the giving those talks. Generally, you're not talking about you know, exactly what you do. It's not a vendor pitch, right? It's good right. research you've done but it gives those people who did the research and did the talk the opportunity to advance their own career, get their own skills doing public speaking. It gives them the chance to network and they come back with this new knowledge, things they've learned while they're there. It's good for the industry. It's good for those people. It's good for the people who are there listening. It's good all the way around. I'm not sure that it's really the way to go and invest and go sell your product, but it's a really good thing to do. It is good for your brand quite a bit too, and that could lead to product sales only from the perspective of, if you've got a sharp technical person and they're up there giving an amazing presentation, what's left with the audience is like, oh, you know, logarithm knows right. what they're talking about. They yeah. actually they know, know this space. That. They have smart people. Uh, maybe I should talk to them. Yeah. And and so I think it, it does end up, there is a return on investment, but it may not be as heavy as RSA or Black Hat or something. No, what we need to be careful of is we don't want this community to turn into a group of people who are running around trying to become celebrities by mm-hmm. speaking at the same events, you know, and going over that. Like some of this content, once it's pre- been presented once or twice, probably shouldn't be presented again, right? And people, I, I really hope we all encourage people, your contributions to the security community should be the information you share, the tools you share, and the work your company does, not how many presentations did you mm-hmm. give or how popular, you know, how are you close to Swift on security or not, right? <laughs> like, that's not how we actually make a difference for companies. Yeah. It's not a popularity contest. Yeah. So last, last question for you guys, swag. What, what, is, what is the value of giving out swag at the booth? Uh, as, as, you know, an attendee, of course, you're looking for the, so the thing, the battery pack you need or the thing to bring home to your kids or whatever it is. But as, you know, as the vendor side, buying these things, why are we spending so much money on all this stuff? What do you guys think? Well, I'll start by saying this is probably the most technical interview you've had on your show as we talk about vendors, events, and, and swag now. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think just having cool swag is just something that, uh, especially if it's, it's you know, if people, something people will actually use. It has your brand on there, so they're always going to look at that thing and see your brand whenever they go, you know. Walking to, advertising. That's yeah. right. That's right. It's just walking advertising and then, oh, hey, look, buddy A needs a power pack. Great. Let me hand this over. Oh, it says ping identity on it or whatever the yeah. case might be. It's just something that is It's just always, like you said, walking branding. Welcome to my soapbox. We Red Canary does not and will never have swag. We have gear. This is on the record now. <laughs> it, it is absolutely on the record. We we will never have pens, we will never have stress balls, we will never have the stuff that you can get at our booth and everyone else's. Yeah. Like we go with the nicest shirts you can get, we have the nicest jackets, we try and make sure that everything we do, we've got one of these really nice Red Canary growlers right here. I think your gear that you give away is a manifestation of your brand. Hmm. And so for us, we will spend substantially more money on quality and have substantially less quantity because that's really synonymous with our brand. And so 
if you see someone in a red canary t-shirt, it's not because we gave away 20,000 of them. There's not that many people who have one. Right. But, you know, you look at all these conferences, a lot of security people go around with their swag bag yeah. and they are looking for things that they either bring home for their children uh, or just something to put in their office. And, um, you know, last I checked, I don't think I want to give my kid a growler uh, as an <laughs> example. Um, but no, don't get me wrong. I would be very impressed and, and happy with a growler, but it's just not something I'd pass on to my kid. And, and the other part, as I'd say, is, you know, even if it's cheap swag, like, you know, these, those carbon black swords are like all over my office still uh, from Black Hat. So yeah. there's probably 15 carbon black swords in my office. See, I would have, if I had been saying that sentence, I would have said, you know those swords that someone gave away at the conference? There's all over the, all over the office because I, I don't remember who gave yeah. them away and they don't, it doesn't accomplish that goal for me very well. See, you know, you just hit the nail on the head. Like we don't, we don't do special gear and things like that. Mm-hmm for you to give to your kids. Yeah. Like, thankfully, there's lots of other people who do cool things <laughs> yeah. like that that you give to your kids. Yeah. Plus, you don't we, want to give that swag anyways because it breaks and falls apart. Yeah. Now it's a choking it, hazard. We want like, stuff that's memorable for you, right? Yeah. Walk around and wear, like, when you put on the Red Canary shirt, you're like, man, that is one of the softest shirts it I've is ever a comfort, gotten. It is a comfortable shirt. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's a quote we actually heard today, if, if I recall. It was, up here in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. Uh, we, I say one of the one of the reasons I ask about this is I, I think about swag. I walk around the RSA Expo Hall or whatever, and just think about the millions and millions of dollars that are sunk into this junk, right? And a lot of that junk literally will be thrown away after the conference. Mm-hmm. I don't know, thirty percent, eighty percent, you know, some significant percentage yeah, of that really stuff sad. is is going to get wasted. And it just we're so inefficient as an industry and you know, the prices are, get, are high and, and only going higher because of that kind of stuff, that, that wasted marketing spend. I'd like to see us be smarter about the spend. I like, I like how thoughtful, Brian, I like how thoughtful you are about what you guys invest in and, and you, know, you have a point, everything you make is high quality and it's going to people who will appreciate it. Otherwise, just don't, don't make it. I like that, like that thought. Um, so that's all the questions I had, guys. I'll let you guys ask questions if you have any. What event are you most looking forward to in the next 12 months? Oh man, I really don't know. Um, I'm looking for, forward to events where I don't actually have to present at. That's, uh, that's always a nice option. Um, I don't really have anything for the remainder of the year. I am going to um, you know, Minnesota for a, actually, an event in Minnesota, two events in Minnesota, um, and a few others, but nothing that's, that's big. The, I'm, I'm talking at the Secure World Denver conference coming nice. up. Um, Great, what's the topic? Uh, that's a good question. Put me on the spot here. Sorry. Um, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly what it is. Uh, I, I do have a talk ready to go though, that I, I put together for it. That's great. Um, uh, I'm doing that. And of course, Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference is not that far off. It's just next June. So that's, <laughs> that's what, what are we at? Nine months from now, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So that'll be, that'll be good. What about you? What's your favorite event coming up? You know, I'm really looking forward to DerbyCon. Mm-hmm. I went for the first time last year. It was a great event. We, you know, by the time this airs, we actually had a couple extra tickets. So Rachel Toback and the Women in Security and Privacy Group is mm-hmm. going to be raffling those off. So excited cool. to see some of those extras. Yeah, I've got go a lot of my place. team. A lot of my team going to DerbyCon as well. Yeah, we have a bunch of folks going to AWS Reinvent, which is now like one of the biggest conferences in the world. It's it is yeah. bigger, bigger than RSA now, I think. It's like RSA, but bigger for technology people. Yeah. Yep. Anything, James, anything before we 
call it? No, I think I'm good. All I'm right. ready for a refill. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for your time. This has been fun. Great. Thanks, right, Rob. Talk to you guys soon. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.